Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning, everybody. My name's Don. I'm an alcoholic. And I'm really grateful to be here this morning. I'm I'm not only grateful, but I was joking around with Lee uh, right before I got up here. And I'm always stunned when anybody takes part of a beautiful day or sometimes all of a beautiful day if you have the fortitude to sit through all of it to to, um, to, to go with me on a journey through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, a lot of other reasons I'm grateful to be here. I get to see some folks that I love a lot, uh, don't get to see a whole lot, and just real glad to be here. And what I'm scheduled to do today is uh, kind of go through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first thing I want to say is I am not a teacher. Uh, I've always been taught that there weren't any teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Over the years, I've seen some folks who seem like they might want to be teachers, uh, and uh, just in my opinion, you understand, uh, and I've never particularly wanted anything that they had. Uh, a logical question that comes to my mind is who in the world I think I am to sit up here and talk about steps to other people. Uh, I know who I am. I'm a hopeless, pitiful drunk that by the grace of God I'm able to live a day at a time without alcohol or drugs and try to be of a little use in this world. Why I'm here is real simple. Somebody asked me. Uh, I, I have never in my life said, hey, you know, why don't you guys uh, bring me so-and-so and have me talk or have me go through the steps or something. <laughs> I always get asked, and, and I don't know why. Um, my original sponsor, who was a fellow by the name of Cherry from Nashville, Tennessee, um, uh, a lot of the things that you're here today came to me through Cherry. Um, a lot of them that I thought were original to Cherry, I have since found out came from somewhere else. Usually in the big book somewhere where I'd over where I'd overlooked it, but frequently from uh, from Chuck. Uh, Cherry was a big fan of Chuck's, and and Cherry passed a lot of Chuck stuff on to me. But when I was a couple of months sober. Um, I had become sure that Hollywood would be very interested in my dramatic tale and, um, you know, that my door would be beaten down by people wanting to hear it. Of course, nobody asked me to talk for almost two years, but but at at two months sober, I was just sure that would happen. So I went to Cherry to kind of get a jump on the problems that were coming uh, 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 of how I would be able to call things out and how I would know what, obligations in AA I was supposed to accept and what obligations I was not supposed to accept. And Cherry said, Don, you usually ask me questions that I have to tell you things that are kind of vague, you know, like pray about that or go home, get your pencil and piece of paper out and draw a line down the middle of the paper and after you pray, write the reasons to do one way on one side of the line, the reasons for the other on the other, said, but you have finally asked me a question that I can answer specifically. He said, you won't have a bit of trouble knowing when you're supposed to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous because somebody will ask you. And and I've kind of tried to live live by that, and it, and, and it served me pretty well. Um, I think it's kind of customary in this area to to give you dry date in your home group before you before you start. Uh, I guess the theory is if a person doesn't give it, they may not have one. Um, and my sobriety date is April the ninth of nineteen eighty one, and my home group is the Calm Down Group, um, which is a Wednesday afternoon discussion and meets at five o'clock at a little clubhouse right across the river from downtown Louisville. And unlike my friend Lorraine, I did name the Calm Down Group uh, because by Wednesday I, I usually really need to to calm down. Talk a little bit about what we're going to do today. Um, I don't have a speech to give. 
Um, I'm not going to talk about studying the steps, and I really, really don't want to say anything controversial at all. Um, and I'm very serious about that. You know, to me, one of the most important parts of the big book is Bill saying that nothing would please us so much as to write a volume that had no controversy, stirred up no controversy whatsoever. Uh, controversy has not seemed to be helpful to me in my recovery. Um, the big book tries very hard to stay away from it. That's why I rarely instead of never. That's why in the whole hundred six, first 164 pages, Bill never called alcoholism a disease. Did Bill believe it was a disease? Certainly he did. But that was even more controversial in the 30s than it is now. And Bill was able to convey everything that he needed to convey by calling it an illness or a malady or a disorder without running the risk of controversy and turning somebody's ears off to the recovery message by using a controversial word. So I, I try to live my life that way. I fail sometimes, as I fail at so many th things, but I really hope that I don't say anything controversial. All I can share, and I never thought about doing this until later, 10 years ago, somebody said, hey, Don, why don't you go through the steps? And because we had been sponsored, I said, okay, uh, we'll do that. And the only thing that I knew to do then is the same thing that I know to do this morning. And all I can share is what I have shared over the years with people that I sponsor. And I've been so blessed because I've been able to sponsor a, 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 an awful lot of guys over the years. I want to tell you about my success at sponsoring guys. First, I don't have any. But then I don't have any failure either. It's such a beautiful gift that I know that I'm not powerful enough to make the difference between somebody getting drunk and staying sober. I've got sponsees that this very weekend are out talking at conferences and people are just throwing gardenias at them, saying, you know, you're great, you ought to be a guru. I've got other, sp other sponsees that are in graveyards this morning and back in penitentiaries on account of going back to use it. I am sad about the folks that haven't made it, and I'm real happy for the folks that are doing well, but I don't feel any pride about the ones that are doing well. I don't feel like I deserve, and I don't take any credit for it, and I don't take any responsibility for the dead ones and the ones that are back out there because I'm simply not that important. And the best of my ability and knowledge, I told, and more importantly, tried to show every one of those guys the same thing. So all I've got to share with anybody is what I've shared with the people that I sponsored, and that's what we're gonna, um, that's what we're gonna do this morning. Another thing that I expect you'll hear an awful lot of is that I'm gonna talk a whole lot about what I have done. Um, I'll probably talk a lot more about what I have done than any great spiritual enlightenment or burning bushes that I've seen. There's a good reason for that because I hadn't seen any burning bushes. Okay? Now, in saying that, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. Um, because I know some of us do. You know, some of us, but Bill Wilson had the, you know, the dramatic experience. Uh, if I'd kept on waiting for that, I'd been in a, in a grave somewhere for way over 20 years. Uh, I, I haven't had the burning bushes. I'm not going to talk about what I've learned. Most of what I learned about AA and about recovery, I learned while I was dying of alcoholism, and I don't think that knowledge did me a bit of good whatsoever. I was sponsored, and I believe with all my heart that sobriety and recovery is only a tiny little bit a learning process. I had enough knowledge to stay sober a day at a time the rest of my life without ever drinking, <laughs> without drinking or drugging, um, for at least two years before I could get sober. What was killing me wasn't what I knew and didn't know. What was killing me was what I was doing and what I was not doing. 
Another thing that I, I usually try to say because I've, I've had some people and I sure do understand how they get that impression. Uh, tell me later that they got the impression that I was saying something along the lines of stuff your feelings, you know. It doesn't matter. Don't pay any attention to your feelings. I'm not saying stuff your feelings. Uh, I've found that these 12 steps give me the most wonderful vehicle that I've ever been able to find to look my feelings right straight in the eye and say, yes, there you are. What I am saying is that by the grace of God, I have learned that I do not have to build a shrine to my feelings. You see, all my life when I had a feeling, my behavior automatically fell in behind that feeling, and I went to work on you to get your behavior to fall in behind my feeling. Because, you see, a very big part of my illness, of that disordered ego that is my alcoholism, that's the root of it. The book says selfishness, self-centeredness is the root. And, and Cherry explained to me that what that means is the first thing wrong with me is, is a disorder of my ego. And everything else is, has flowed from that. And on account of that disorder of my ego, without divine intervention, I am so self-centered that the obsession on myself, the obsession with how I feel, the obsession with how I believe I stack up against other people in this world is so great that it causes a pain and an emptiness down inside me that I can't stand. And I have to do something about that. And <clears throat> right at the core of that illness is this insane conviction that what I think, feel, and believe is the center of the universe. My Lord, we can't have little Donnie doing something he doesn't feel like doing. You know, it'd just be awful. And at, at 22 years sober, i got to tell you, when, as I frequently do, I hit those crossroads where that little spark of the divine in me knows just exactly where the next stitch ought to go or where it ought not go, and my brain is telling me that if I don't do the exact opposite, it'll be a disaster. <clears throat> In other words, I get to the point where I don't feel like doing the right thing. Every fiber in my being wants to do something like call up one of you guys and aggravate you about me not feeling like doing right. And what can we do to make me feel like doing right? Because that's based on the premise that, my Lord, we can't have little Donnie doing something he doesn't feel like doing. You know, it'd just be against nature. And besides that, even worse, it would make me a hypocrite. Now, we alcoholics are real peculiar about hypocrisy. You know, after we've done our inventories and we've stayed sober a while and done our amends, we can come up with a, a tasteful and subtle smile about uh, past larceny and past adultery and that sort of thing. And if a homicide is long enough ago and the circumstances were just right, we can get a little lift to the corner of the mouth out of that. But my God, we don't want to be hypocrites. You know, it's just the worst thing in the world that we do something we don't feel like doing. Uh, so, so I have aggravated you folks to death when I don't feel like doing the right thing. I have worried sponsors to distraction about it. I have prayed until I felt like I was going to get blue in the face from praying about not feeling like doing right and something make me feel like doing right so I could do right. I have spent a bunch of money on outside counseling sober, to try to get me to feel like doing right so I can do right. And I just really hate this. But the only therapy that has ever done me any good with regard to making me feel like doing right is going on doing right for feel like it. And I just absolutely hate that. And, and, and so what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the actions being what have well, what have saved and do save me a day at a time, a minute at a time, that it's not what's going on in the head. I'm not saying stuff our feelings. I'm just saying, hey, I can't let them be the most important thing in the universe. See, that's right at the core of all of it, is that without divine intervention, the way I feel is the most important thing in the universe. And that's at the very core of everything that's wrong with me, that ego disorder. That's at the very core of all the things I did that destroyed so much and very nearly killed me, is letting how I feel be the most important thing in this universe. Uh, I want you to know when I'm up here talking about the steps that I am so imperfect 
that there are times when I think I'm so unworthy to be doing this. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, I called up Tom B. from up around Cleveland, who's been my sponsor for the last 13 years, and uh, uh, said, Tom, Tom's been sober uh, a little over 40 years now, I think. Um, and I said, Tom, man, I'm just going through a bad spot. It's one of those gray periods, you know, and... I feel like I'm disconnected. I, I feel hypocritical when I get up and talk to people, when I'm talking to people I sponsor and that sort of thing. Tom talked to me a little bit about what I was doing. It turned out I was going on doing what I needed to do, and he shared with me, I have periods where I go through exactly the same thing. He said, Don, our helpfulness to other people isn't based on how we feel. Our helpfulness to other people is based on what we do. So... All I've been able to do on spiritual on a spiritual journey, and the spiritual journey is the most important aspect of my life. No, no contest. Nothing else is even close. But the best I've ever been able to do is stumble a few steps in the right direction, get knocked down by self-will, momentarily forget that I ever did a third step, forget that I ever did a seventh step. Forget that there's any, that there is any such thing as an 11th step to live on. Just get knocked in the dust by self-will and say, oops, mom, dad, I fouled up again, excuse me. Dust myself off and stumble another couple of steps in the right direction. And I want to tell you, that's not something that belongs just to my early sobriety. Right today, there are days when I do that process at least 100 times the starting over i've got a buddy who says that the most important word in all the 12 steps is in the in the 10th step it's continued and you know for years i thought that every time that i got knocked over by self-will and had to start over that that was an interruption of my spiritual growth i guess after i got sober and began and became awake and to me a spiritual awakening is real simple it's literal it's being awake to spiritual things being aware of them because I was comatose to them until I got sober and began to go my journey through the steps. But I thought that every one of those lapses and getting up and starting over was an interruption of my spiritual growth. And I know now that that's the only spiritual growth of which I'm capable. And it turns out that my God doesn't require perfection from me. He or she doesn't even really require consistency. My God is tickled to death with persistence. That's stumbling in the right direction. So if I say things, and, and sometimes we, we do because we're trying to cover material, you know, in a situation like this, that leads you to believe that I've done something perfectly, don't believe it. I'm just saving time by not telling you all the warts on, on what I've done. Uh, I don't believe really we're going to learn anything today that will help any of us. But I do think that if what happens today motivates us to action, that we may be rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence on account of what happens. Um, and, you know, the big book is right along those lines. Some of the things that the big book says uh, is that it tells us that this book, the purpose of the book, is to tell folks precisely how we have recovered. Not what we learn, not what spiritual growth we got, but precisely how we have covered what we've done. The book also says that we will specifically tell you what we have to do to recover, not what we have to learn, not what we have to absorb. It says that it will give us clear-cut directions. It says if we're prompted to action, not philosophical enlightenment, but to action, that we'll be rocketed into a fourth dimension. And to me, really importantly, it says that the spiritual life is not a theory. I have to live it. My spirituality isn't what I know. It isn't what I think. It isn't what I feel. My feeling all centered and so connected with God that we're going to join hands and go out floating through the universe and merge with the town, to me, is not spirituality. Spirituality is returning that telephone call when I don't want to return it. Spirituality is making up the bed when it needs to be made up, and I don't want to do it. Spirituality is showing up where I've committed to be, even though I don't want to go and I don't feel like it. 
that spirituality and what it means to me when it says that that's what it means when the book says that the spiritual life is not a is not a theory that we have to live it. Another thing that Cherry Carpenter uh, impressed on me is that knowledge without action is not useless. It's worse than useless. Because once we know the right thing to do and don't do it, we're in far worse shape than we were before we knew what we were supposed to do. Um, for that reason, I prefer to call what we're doing today a step use discussion rather than a step study or a seminar or that sort of thing. Uh, so, and again, I don't care what anybody else calls it, leak and label it whatever he wants to, and I won't have any reaction to that. Uh, and I'm so grateful that God's put me in that position of neutrality. Uh, in fact, that's been a huge gift that I've had, and I, I hope that I can share some of that gift with you guys today. In the time that I've been sober, I don't believe that I have had one single emotional reaction to, for instance, how somebody else interprets and applies a tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've certainly seen a lot of things that, you know, my thought process is that would not be the right way for me to do it. But I don't get into the anger, I don't get into the resentment, I don't get into the, my God, I have to change that. You know, if, if, if I don't tell them they are wrong, who will tell them? You know, I've got to tell them. Uh, and my God, it's my mission to save Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, the traditions are awfully important, and I believe that each of our individual adherence to it is, is truly in the final analysis, as important as the steps. So I'm, I'm a big traditions man, but I'm a big traditions man for me. I'm not a big traditions man on what you ought to do as a tradition. And it got clear to me real early in sobriety that the way things are today, nothing can happen that there, as long as I'm alive, that there won't be enough folks that I know and know how to contact that are involved in recovery, that I can have the fellowship and the meetings that I need to stay sober. There's only one person who can destroy Alcoholics Anonymous for me, and that's me. And one way I can do that, you know, our, our code is love and tolerance that tells us that in the 10th step, uh, love and tolerance of others, actually. And sometimes I think we may get it in our heads that the code really is something like, say, responsibility and accountability and that sort of thing. Uh, responsibility and accountability and efficiency are great, and they certainly are components of spirituality. But the book says that the code is love and tolerance of others. And I've had to learn a really nasty lesson about tolerance that I didn't like worth a hoot. In fact, still don't like it sometimes. I had to learn that I had a high threshold for aggravation confused with tolerance. In other words, if what you were doing mildly irritated me, but I was able to say, oh, gee, let old Joe or Sue go ahead and do that. That's all right. They're wrong, but I'm going to be big about this and not bother me. It didn't really bother me much. I thought that was tolerance. That's not tolerance. That's a high threshold for aggravation. Tolerance doesn't even become an issue until I find what you're doing absolutely intolerable. Until I find it absolutely intolerable and feel called by God to straighten you out for the good of the world. That's when tolerance becomes important. That's when I've gone beyond the high threshold for aggravation. And those are the things that I must tolerate if I'm going to have any peaceful sobriety. Um, we're going to treat the big book this morning as not a philosophy book, uh, but as an, an instruction manual for actions. Um, we're not going to approach Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not going to approach the steps as a self-help program. If I could have helped myself, I would have before I ever got sober. Uh, this is this is not a self-help deal. I've been taught, and, and that's been my experience. It's also not a selfish deal. 
Now, I understand why people sometimes say that AA is a selfish program, and, and there's real valid point in there, the point being that if I don't do what's necessary to protect my sobriety, then I'm not going to be any good to myself or anybody else. So I'm not knocking people who say that. I'm saying that my book tells me that my illness is selfishness and self-centeredness, that that is my illness is selfishness and self-centeredness. I can't effectively treat that with more obsession on self. You know, and I've tried so hard to do that in sobriety. I will dress it up in spiritual clothing and say, surely this will work because I love to obsess on me. You know, it's just my favorite pastime is obsessing on me. It always has been. Uh, so I'll dress it up in spiritual clothing and say, well, this can't possibly be obsessing on me because I've got it all dressed up in spiritual clothing. Or then I'll dress it up in psychological clothing, you know, and so I can obsess on me. And it never works. When I'm trying to, when I'm trying to treat an illness that is self-centeredness with obsession on self, I'm trying to put out a fire with gasoline. It simply doesn't work. My illness is self-centeredness. My recovery is reaching out to others. My recovery is praying to love, comfort, and understand you rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by you. My recovery is trying to do God's will rather than making me centered, rather than making me okay. Now, I'm not saying we don't do things to take care of ourselves. Certainly we do. Because we have no use to anybody else if we are not, if we don't do those things. But that doesn't need to be my focus. Uh, it has worked for me real well to basically do it the way Chuck Chamberlain said and did. And that is that if I'll try to take care of God's kids, try to help you guys do what you need to have done for free and for fun because I want to, that that's my job. And taking care of me is not my job. It's God's job. And if I'll do my job of trying to reach out and take care of you guys, God will never fail to do his or her job. God will take care of me, and that's the way it's worked for me. Uh, you know, the book tells us that uh, a main purpose is to find the higher power that will solve our problems. My, my friend Bob uh, B. from up in St. Paul, Minnesota, tells a little thing that I love. Um, he says that farmers don't grow things. Farmers create uh, an atmosphere in which growth can take place and God grows things. Doctors don't heal anybody. Doctors create an atmosphere in which healing will take place and God heals. And that's exactly what I hope we're able to do through these steps and what I believe does happen is that through that we create an atmosphere in which God will do the healing and God will take us on spiritual growth and and that's how the healing happens. Um, the big book and the steps may or may not be the only way for you or for anybody else. One of the important things about Bill trying not to be controversial in the book is it specifically says, hey, we're not claiming to be the only way on anything. That To make that claim would be absolutely antagonistic to the whole tenor of the book, to the whole tenor of recovery. It would be arrogant. There would be no humility in it. It would be controversial. Uh, it would stir up argument. It would cause resentment. Um, so I don't know. I know that the steps are the only thing that have ever worked for me. And that's all I can share with you guys. Frankly, I don't know a whole lot of them, but I do know some folks that have been sober a long, long time that believe they're alcoholics, and from their history, it looks like to me if I were going to make the call on anybody being an alcoholic, that I'd probably suggest that they were. That doing just fine, without going to AA meetings, without doing the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I am a kind of alcoholic for whom that will not work. I don't even know whether you are an alcoholic or not, much less what kind you are. I'll also tell you that my observation has been that those folks that can do it without the fellowship, without the steps are very few and very far between, in my observation, that most alcoholics, this winds up being, for us, the only game in town. It certainly is for me. Um, I won't talk about dysfunctional families. I won't talk about inner children. Um, 
I believe with all my heart that when the book says on page 133 that God filled this world with great doctors and counselors and we should not hesitate to use them if appropriate, that that's exactly right, and I believe in that. Uh, I have sponsees all the time say, Don, my doctor wants me to take this. What should I do? Say, my God, man, I'm a lawyer. Do what your doctor says. I don't know anything about what you're supposed to do. do take, you know, take it the way the doctor recommends it. And, you know, as long as you've told the doctor what you are and what your situation is, I'm not going to practice medicine, for goodness sakes. You know, you, 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 you do what they tell you to do, and you do it the way that they, uh, that, that they say doing it. However, here's what I do believe. I believe that if we try to take an easier, softer way by taking our alcoholism to the doctors or to the counselors and saying, treat this, that it's a whole lot like taking a jellyfish to an orthopedic surgeon. It's not the surgeon's fault. There's just nothing in that jellyfish that they can work on. And I believe that's the way it is with us. And I also believe when we're floundering around with self-help books and, and counseling and that sort of thing, instead of doing these first nine steps in order to reach a state of recovery and after that living on 10, 11, and 12 every day, when we're doing that instead of the steps, I believe that we're standing on a whale's back fishing for menace. Because I've found for me... All the power in the universe is in these steps. These steps, when I, when I will do them right, plug me into a source of power that I just was unable to imagine. Can't begin to comprehend it today, but there's truly magic in these steps. And the easier, softer ways don't do it on my alcoholism. Now, if we've done the steps, we've done them the way the book says, and we've got problems left, hey, Go to it. You know, that's what the doctors and counselors are there for. But trying to use them as a substitute for the steps on alcoholism, I've never seen that be effective. I've told you I've seen other folks stay sober other ways than I have. But I've never seen one single person stay reasonably, comfortably sober by substituting the self-help or the counseling or that sort of thing for the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for their alcoholism. Um, Talk a little bit before we get into the steps themselves about the difference in the program and the fellowship. And, and we all, you know, we hear those terms and we know there's a difference, but they're really, really important to me. Um, I was, was taught, and I believe, that I can be going to 10 meetings a week, going to conferences all over the country and talking the best AA that you ever saw and all of my friends be members of Alcoholics Anonymous and not be in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And be a member of the fellowship on any day I've got a desire to stop drinking. Doesn't even have to be an honest desire. You know, any day I've got a desire to stop drinking and be a member of the fellowship. But I believe with all my heart, unless I'm somewhere in the process of doing the first nine steps the way the book says do them in order to reach a state of recovery or having done that, I'm living every day on 10, 11, and 12, I'm not even in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's real simple. Why? Nothing else in the first 164 pages is called a program for recovery, except the steps. It says, here are the steps we took that are suggested as a program for recovery. And I believe if I try to latch on to the fellowship like that, without doing the steps, without getting in the program for recovery, that I might stay dry a week or I might stay dry 30 years. But if I do it that way, I'll have, have no absolutely no healing of what's really wrong that disordered ego, that inability to be comfortable inside myself, except just exactly as I do those steps. Uh, I was taught that uh, the steps work on alcoholism like penicillin works on an infection. That if I've got an infection that's going to kill me if it's not treated, but will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand all the ins and outs of my infection. In fact, I don't even need to really believe that that silly little, in, little infection could cause such terrible things to be wrong with magnificent me. And I don't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin works in the human body. 
don't even need to believe that that little bottle of pills can take care of what's wrong with me. And here's the kicker. I don't even need to want to take the pills. If I've got the infection and I take the pills as directed, and that was underscored very strongly for me as directed, if I take the pills as directed, I'm going to get just fine, thank you. And I believe, I know that my experience with these steps has been precisely that. They are the prescription for for my alcoholism. They also are, are clearly called and are a process of ego deflation. After doing the first nine steps, our ego will be deflated. But the human ego is the most resilient quantity in the universe, perhaps, because it always reasserts itself. And that's why we have to have 10, 11, and 12 to live on every day. Um, when I first got sober, I would, I would talk about my program. Um, Cherry would, would lovingly correct me. And you know, there aren't many old sponsors who were as mean and as abrupt as they get the rap from being from the podium. Uh, let, let me let you in on, on a secret. The reason that you hear from the podium so much about these overbearing dictatorial sponsors who said things, you know, wham, 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 and you must do that, is because when we're up here talking, we don't want to sound like we're preaching. We don't want to sound like we know something or something that you got to do. So we blame it on some poor old sponsor that's moldering in a grave after staying sober 40 years and dying. Uh, some of us respond to that kind of harsh treatment. Uh, most of us don't. I wouldn't have. Uh, I would have died with that kind of treatment. And although uh, Cherry Carpenter certainly pulled no punches with me, and he had a reputation of being, you know, right down the line, uh, strict on the big book, uh, Cherry didn't didn't talk to me that way. He didn't abuse me. He didn't make me feel less than. Uh, but <coughs> but uh, at any rate, one thing he would do anytime I would say my program, he would say, Don, your program got you here. He said, there's not your program and my program, there's the program and it's numbered, one through twelve. So he didn't like me to talk about my program <clears throat> because my program is not the solution, my program was the problem. Um, he also told me that the steps are called the steps for a reason. You know, they could have called them the 12 propositions, the 12 tenets, you know, just on and on. But but they're not. They're called the steps. And the uh, reason for that, I was told, is that in a conventional staircase, step two actually has to have step one because step one forms the base on which step two rests. And also it doesn't make any sense to have a staircase with a... a First step, third step, eleventh step, twelfth step, and no steps in between. Uh, he also told me that I needed to do the steps in order, uh, and he explained because he knew that I was into intellectual nuances, that the way that we knew we were supposed to do them in order was that they had been numbered. Uh, and uh, a little story that I heard in early sobriety really helps me to understand why it's important for me to do the steps in order and stay where I am and focus on it. And the kind of problem I'm addressing, and, and all of us have heard it, and most of us have worried about it ourselves, my God, I can't do this fourth step because I can't make amends to those people. Well, my God, we have five steps from making amends to anybody. We may get drunk, we may die, we may decide just not to do it. You know, uh, the fourth step has nothing to do with making amends, and yet things like worrying about the Ninth step can keep us from doing the fourth step. Also, a lot of the steps have more than one part, like the eighth step is clearly a two-part step. Number one, we made a list of people, uh, of persons we had harmed, and number two, became willing to make amends to them all. Uh, I don't need to be worrying about the second part of step eight when I'm doing the first part, because if I'm worrying about that, I may not get everybody on the list that needs to be on the list. There may be some kind of process that weed somebody out. I need to stay where I am in the bed. And the best little story that pointed that out to me that I ever heard had to do with an alcoholic that had a flat tire out on an old dark country road late at night by themselves. They got out and looked, and they didn't have a jack in the car. Had a spare tire, but not a jack. So, I, oh, my Lord, what am I going to do? And looks way up in the distance and sees this little light way down the road and says, uh, 
Well, I walk up there, maybe it's a farmhouse. So the, the committee goes to work inside the alcoholic's head, you know. What if it's not even a house? What if it's just a light on a barn or something and gets to where and see it's a house? Well, what if there's nobody home? Uh, what if the home won't answer the door this time of night? Uh, what if I get up there and they answer the door and, uh, and they don't have a jack? Uh, what if I get up there and they answer the door and they have a jack, but they won't let me borrow it? Pray they won't bring it back. And, uh, what if I, if they have a jack and, and I borrow it and I walk all the way back to the car and it won't fit? And by this time the alcoholic's knocking on the door and old farmer comes to the door and says, yes, can I help you? Alcoholic says, I didn't want to borrow your damn jack anyway. Uh, but <laughs> so that's, uh, that, that's what I need to bear in mind, is I need to stay where I am in these steps. And incidentally, um, again, I'm not, I hope I don't get on a single soapbox. I don't feel on any, like I'm on any soapboxes and don't want to be on any. I sometimes say I'm a recovering alcoholic, uh, not much anymore. Um, when I got sober 22 years ago in Nashville, Tennessee, it was just sort of, I mean, it was the order of the day. You referred to yourself as a recovering alcoholic. And to hear somebody say recovered alcoholic just caused you to gasp, you know, that they were so egotistical and it was so, uh, so, 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 so wrong to do that. Uh, Cherry explained to me that if I wanted to call myself recovering alcoholic, that was fine. But he wanted me to understand that the book talked about recovered alcoholics. Well, by that time, I had become quite a big book scholar, so I said, well, Cherry, where did they hide that in the big book? He said, well, the first place they hid it, Don, is in the subtitle of the book. I didn't even know the book had a subtitle. The subtitle is the story of how many, how many thousands, um, thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Said next place they hid it was two or three times in the first paragraph to the foreword to the first edition. You know where it was talking about we a hundred, over a hundred men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. Uh, and he also told me to Cherry's theory was that you only did steps one through nine one time. Okay? Now, again, no soapbox, no big deal. I'm just sharing with you what was shared with me and the way I choose to view things. The reason that's no big deal is that everything that we do in one through nine is included in 10, 11, and 12, is included in the maintenance steps. For example, in Mass Sobriety, I've done more than a half dozen inventories that came right out of page 64 through 70. And if you looked at them, you would say, that is a fourth step inventory that Don has done. But in my mind, it was not. It was 10th step work of continuing to take personal inventory. Part of my morning meditation is, is reading the third step prayer and reading the seventh step prayer. But in my mind, I am not redoing the, uh, rather, third step prayer and seventh step prayer. In my mind, I am not redoing the third step. I am not redoing the seventh step. I'm doing eleventh step work. I'm continuing to, or I'm seeking to improve my conscious contact with God as, as I understand God. Uh, now, it took me years sober to understand why Cherry even bothered to make that distinction, but I understand it real well now. And they're, they're the same thing. The recovered alcoholic as opposed to recovering distinction and the fact that you only do the first nine steps once, then you live on the other other three. Cherry knew that if I had the opportunity to view myself as some sort of poor little handicapped cripple that was living in a world where those folks out there don't understand me, I'm an alcoholic, you know, and I have to take care of myself. He knew that 15 years sober, I'd be sitting around a clubhouse somewhere playing euchre and talking about the fact that those folks out there in the real world didn't understand me because I was different. I was a poor little crippled alcoholic having to just stay mired down in the mud the rest of my life. He knew if he gave me that crutch, I'd grab it. He wanted me to understand that once I'd done these first nine steps the way the book says do them, and then as long as I was living on 10, 11, and 12 a day at a time the way the book said do it, that I was at least as capable 
of dealing with life on life's terms as the average person who never had alcoholism. And if I wasn't, one of two things was wrong. I needed to go back and do some repair work on my steps or I had something wrong other than alcoholism where I perhaps needed to look for outside help other than that. But if my problem is alcoholism, having done those steps, as long as I may do the actions that maintain my spiritual condition a day at a time, and he wanted me to understand that I was as well equipped to deal with life as anybody. Um, as we go through the steps, I, I'm going to suggest what I used to think was the silliest statement I had ever heard in my life. You know, there's a great big old thick book that some people call the big, big book. And I will tell you going in that I don't go to church and I, I do not consider myself a religious person. But I, I also don't consider myself a non-religious person and I sure do try to live on a spiritual basis. But, but before I got sober, there were a lot of things in that big, big book that I thought were really stupid. In fact, one of my favorite pastimes was arguing with people that believed in that crap, you know, uh, to, uh, to prove my intellectual superiority. But, but of all the stupid things in that book, the silliest thing was to come as a little child. That you could only see the kingdom of heaven or however it's worded by coming as a little child. I want to tell you that that's one of the most important things in my life today. Because these steps are not an intellectual process. Not at all. Trying to fix me was not new when I got sober. I had spent my whole life trying to fix me. As far as inventorying, my God, there was no subject that interested me nearly as much as me. I spent so much energy trying to figure me out. What made me tick? What was wrong with me? So what the steps are for me, they're not taking a deep breath and starting over one more time trying to figure myself out and fix me. They are an exercise like a child, doing a follow the dots drawing where you can't see the picture, you don't know what the picture is, but if that child will just go from dot to dot to dot to dot, the picture will emerge. And that's the way it works for me. I'll share... Oh, I made a terrible mess up here, but sorry. Um, I want to share one other thing with you. Cherry uh, talked to me about before we actually move into the steps themselves. Cherry, uh, as so many people's sponsors seem to have had, uh, Cherry actually did have an acquaintance with Bill Wilson, had had some conversations with him. And, and in one conversation that he had with Bill, Cherry later passed on to me, that Bill had said that about 95% of the people that get in Alcoholics Anonymous are content to go to their meetings and do the steps well enough to stay sober, function in their daily lives, be reasonably comfortable, and go on. But he said about 5% of the people want it all. About 5% really want it all. They really want to get everything that, that God will give us through these steps if we do it. They really want to have the peace. They really want the serenity. They really want to be helpful to other people. And I decided when Cherry told me that way over 20 years ago that it wouldn't be a bad thing to be a five percenter. Uh, I doubt, thank you, Pam. I doubt very seriously that I've succeeded, but I think it's been a very good thing for me to bear that in mind and, and have it as sort of an aspiration through my through my sobriety. Um, another thing that uh, I will be going through today uh, has to do with the promises. And again, no controversy. I'm fine with calling the eighth and ninth step promises the promises. If I'm at a meeting and some somebody says, Don, will you get up and read the promises? I get up and read them as the promises. I don't take five minutes to enlighten my audience about the fact that they're not. But I do want to share with you, as, as many of you probably already know, uh, that nobody ever meant for the eighth and ninth steps to be the promises. Apparently somebody counted them one time and decided you could argue that there are 12 of them. You can also argue that there are 13 of them, and you can argue that there are 11 of them. But the important thing is that this book is full of promises. 
And to me, the eighth and ninth step promises are not even the most beautiful. I mean, they are beautiful and they're wonderful. But as we go through the individual steps, I'll be referring us to the promises that are associated with the individual steps because this book is absolutely full of it. And as we get ready to actually go into the steps themselves, I want to go back one more time to, to Chuck Chamberlain. You know, Chuck Chamberlain said that regardless of what it is, in fact, the example he used was shaving, you know, regardless if it's something that simple, if I will truly give my interest, attention, and love to it, it becomes the most interesting thing in the world. So I'm going to offer you that in approaching the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that if we give our interest, attention, and love to it, that magic will happen and it will become the most important thing in the world. Um, okay. Spend a few minutes talking about one and two and then we'll take a break. And by the way, the, the format that I've got in mind for today, I have promised Lee uh, on a, a stack of Bibles practically that no session will exceed an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, should, I'm, I'm hoping that we have four sessions that are between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes with about a 10, 10 to 15 minute break between the first and second and the third and fourth session. And that ought to give us an easy hour and a half for lunch. Uh, <clears throat> steps one and two, um, I was taught and I believe, are different from the rest of the steps. And how they're different is that step, all the rest of the steps require some sort of action. But steps one and two don't really require action. Steps one and two rather require that I reach certain conclusions. Um, when I first began, and I, I have intentionally not mentioned my story today uh, because I'm going to be speaking later on in the weekend. I didn't want to belabor that, but but just so you, you will know, I didn't get here because alcohol gave me the hiccups. Uh, I, I lost everything. I lost my professional license. I lost families. I lived on the street for almost a year and a half. Uh, I lost some bodily functions with a, through a terrible automobile accident. Uh, my finances were such that when I was three and a half years sober, my sponsor and my lawyer and I got together and decided that my finances had improved in three and a half years to the point where I could file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy without getting indicted. So it took me three and a half years to work up to bankruptcy, paying back uh, the type of bankruptcy that paid back every penny of, of what I owed. Uh, and I made the last payment on the financial wreckage in my past the month. I was, I was 15 years sober. Uh, so I, I, I didn't, as I say, get here because it gave me the hiccups. In the period, two and a half year period before I got sober, I was in some sort of asylum, and I just used that term to lump them all in there, the treatment centers, the psychiatric hospitals, uh, 18 times in two and a half years. Um, so I, I was, uh, I, I, I lost a lot and rode this horse down just about as far as you can ride it. Um, now, a good half of those places I'm calling asylums had treatment programs based on the 12 steps. So I had a, and, and by the way, I do want to tell you this, this ties in with the first step. See, I don't believe that an intellectual admission of alcoholism for me had anything at all to do with the first step. Because I had made that intellectual admission by the time I was in my mid-teens. And I was partly ashamed of that and I was partly proud of it. You know, there was just part of my specialness, you know, of that ocean of creativity inside me. And of course, I knew about uh, Ernest Hemingway and Winston Churchill and Hank Williams and Alexander the Great, you know, and those were just my brothers, you know, of, of, of alcoholism, just for, for, for folks who were wounded by their own understanding, you know. Uh, it was just uh, magnificent. And, and, and see, I thought alcoholism knew it was going to be inconvenient, kind of like having a bad arm or a bad leg or something, and knew that it'd make me die. Oh, you know, 20, 25 years younger, but my God, who wanted to live to be 30 or 35 years old? And, you know, so old, you weren't any good to yourself or anybody else. It, it was far more attractive to live fast, love hard, die young, and leave a beautiful memory, you know. Uh, so, so I don't believe that intellectual mission does much. In fact, and I tell this for the humor of it, when I, 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 I 
my, my life's work has, has been practicing law, and I've been a criminal defense lawyer primarily all my life, and started practicing law in 68, and I had, I had some early success. You know, we alcoholics are great sprinters. We're not much on the marathon, but we're great sprinters. sprinters. And, and I had some, some real nice early success, and, and I felt sorry for my brother and sister alcoholics who weren't intelligent and strong-willed enough to deal with their alcoholism. So we had one drying out joint in Louisville at that time by the name of Pleasant Grove. So I started donating some money to Pleasant Grove to take care of my brothers and sisters that didn't have the intelligence and the willpower, you know, to, to deal with their alcoholism. And I donated enough that they re, uh, redid the recreation hall out there and named it Major Hall after me. It was still named Major Hall several years later when I got kicked out of there twice for getting drunk on Listerine while they were trying to drive me out. Uh, so, so I'm not overly impressed with the power of the intellectual admission of alcoholism. Uh, of course, what I was missing, uh, I was missing the fact that it's incurable, progressive, and fatal in everybody that ever had it. What I was missing was the fact fact that everybody that's ever had this deal, in one form or the other, they've recovered from it or they've died from it. And I wasn't going to be the first exception in the history of the world. See, I thought I could outrun it, outsmart it, bribe it. You know, there had to be some way to do it. But I didn't understand that if I've got it locked up, covered up, sobered up, no other way. Um, <clears throat> the doctor's opinion, by the way, if you haven't read that lately, go back and read it. It is so beautiful. Uh, if if he wasn't if he wasn't inspired from God by God when he wrote that, I don't know how it could have come out because it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But at any rate, uh, I said the first step is conclusions, and I, and and I believe that the first step is in fact and is supposed to be and must be a humanly hopeless dilemma. Absolutely humanly hopeless. Now, in all these asylums I've been in, I could have quoted the first step to you backwards, probably. Okay, admitted that we were powerless over alcohol. Well, by the time I started getting in those joints, that physical uh, craving, the phenomenon of craving that the book talks about, had progressed in me to the point where once I started drinking, I just physically lost the ability to stop. I mean, it was so progressed that something had to intervene and get me physically prized loose from alcohol. And when something did intervene and did that, it took three or four days for me to be physically able to do something like sit up in a chair. So I thought I had to deal on powerless over alcohol because it was real clear to me that once I put it in my body, it was Katie bar the door. There was no predicting my behavior. I would not be able to stop on my own physically. Something would have to intervene if I was to ever stop. So I figured, I got it now. Most people are right. I am powerless. So it's kind of like having a ratchet inside you that over the years has just worn down. And my tolerance to it is just gone. I get any of my body that craving sets up. So I got this. I'm not going to start this nightmare merry-go-round again. So I got it. When I got out of here, I just want to start that old drinking again. Of course, I'd be drunk usually before I got out of the asylum. I was a big one for figuring a way to get drunk in the asylum and, and always drunk as soon as I got out of the asylum. Uh, what I was missing, of course, was the mental obsession. And the book tells us that our problem centers mainly in our minds. And what that tells me is that as powerful as that phenomenon of craving is in me, the mental obsession is more powerful. The mental obsession is more powerful. That mental obsession would get me. You see, where I wind up is that I'm powerless over alcohol whether or not I've got it in my system. And here's part of the humanly hopeless dilemma. If I pick up a drink of alcohol, I will set in motion a physical process that will culminate in my mad dog death if it is not interrupted by an outside force. Because of my mental obsession, unless something is changed inside me that I can do nothing about changing, I will pick up the first drink. I'm as powerless ultimately over the first drink as I am the second one or the 22nd one. 
That's getting pretty serious. If I pick it up, I'm going to die, and I will pick it up, and there's nothing I can do about that. Now, another thing that I had to get through my head, like most, like, you know, Bill and Dr. Bob both use things other than alcohol. Um, and by the time I was making those rounds to the asylums, I had begun to use a lot of things other than alcohol. Again, no soapbox, no controversy. I don't care how anybody else looks at it. I don't think I've got two illnesses. If I've got two illnesses, I've got 150. Because anything, any activity, any person that I ever thought I could do something about that pain and that emptiness that that obsession with myself had created, if I did not use and abuse that in order to try to make me feel better, let me assure you it was an oversight. It was not, it was not intentional on my part. Uh, because the way I feel without divine intervention is the most important thing in the universe to me. So certainly I will do anything without divine intervention to make me feel better. It's just simply, it's that simple. But at any rate, things had gotten all confused with me on the booze and dope. And what would happen would be that I would be in an asylum and I'd be primarily coming off alcohol. And I'd think, you know, these folks are right. I drank this old booze too long. You know, I take that one drink and the craving sets up and, and it's just a nightmare. But, you know, man, I can pop some pills or snort some cocaine or fire up a little Dilaudid or something, and I don't turn into a raving maniac, you know. Uh, so I get out of here, and I'll just chip on old dope. You know, I won't fool with the old booze anymore. Of course, within 24 hours, I'd be on everything. Then they'd have me in there, and they'd be primarily bringing me off dope. And I'd think, you know, I really wasn't doing all that bad till I started messing with this old dope. Uh, you, you know, the, uh, sure, the booze was inconvenient zone, but I was doing all right. You know, I, I was functioning, so when I got out here, I'll just drink. And it was real funny. When you were in the alcoholic mode, it was just shameful to be a drug addict. And when you were in the drug addict mode, it just seemed so pedestrian to be an alcoholic. You know, it was just an insult. Uh, but <laughs> but at any rate, uh, within 24 hours, I'd be on everything. So I had to understand not only am I powerless over it, whether or not I've got it in my body, uh, I have to include all mind-altering substances in that for me. Now, the next conclusion is that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, I thought I had that one down pat, too. You know, I thought, hey, I'm done with that because I didn't have any denial about my life being a mess. Even I wasn't crazy enough that somebody that had done all the things I'd done living on the street and all the messes I was in, uh, that their life wasn't a god-awful mess. So I had no denial about it, no problem. I also was absolutely convinced that it was hard to imagine how a human being could have managed worse than I had managed. So I thought, I got that. Let's go on. Hadn't even scratched the surface. Because, you see, if the, my problem is my life is a mess because I have managed terribly, what do I need with some sort of nebulous higher power out here in step two? All I need to do is grab the bull by the horns and manage better. You know, I just need to manage that circuit. That's why the step doesn't say it. It says life was unmanageable. Now, if I had a car out here in this parking lot, and that car was undrivable, it wouldn't make any difference how much I honed my driving skills or how much I concentrated on my driving. That car wouldn't go, wouldn't go an inch because it's undrivable. Now, if my problem were that I had problems in my life because I was driving terribly, you know, running over people and things and getting arrested and sued and that sort of thing, then that solved the problem. You know, me taking that action on my driving. But if my car's undrivable sitting out there, that's not going to help a thing. I'd sit at the wheel and concentrate until I'm blue in the face and I'm not going anywhere. That's what the book says. My life's unmanageable. Bottom line, yes. My life was a god-awful mess that because of what's wrong with me, I couldn't even have prevented. And because of what's wrong with me on my own, I can't do one thing about cleaning it up. Now, folks, I've hit that absolutely hopeless dilemma. I'm where I need to be because I don't have anywhere else to go. And when we come back after a little break, I'll talk to you a little bit about how absolutely repugnant the step, second step was to me. 
I mean, it, it, it was really, uh, uh, I'm scared to death of snakes, and a snake pit was probably more attractive to me than the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I had absolutely nowhere to go because I had finally been able to reach those conclusions that are the first step. That if I start drinking, I'm going to die, and I can't prevent starting drinking, and my life's a mess that I couldn't even have prevented, and I can't do a thing about cleaning up in and of myself. And when I've done that, I believe I've made those conclusions. And folks, let's take this break for about, uh, uh, oh, say 10 minutes and come back, uh, or 15 minutes and come back. And thank you so much for listening to me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.